Hi, I'm Andy Bush, and you're listening to Through the Decades, a podcast that takes a nostalgic trip down memory lane with some of my favourite people. Each week, my guest and I will be starting in the 60s before going to the 70s, 80s, 90s, noughties, 10s, and back to the present day as they share their stories of how each decade has shaped their lives and made them what they are today. guest today is actor and comic Ralph Little. Ralph, how are you doing? Hello, how are you doing? I'm good, man. Good to have you on board. Are you someone Thanks. who looks back or are you a look forward kind of guy, just before we get into this? Do you know what? I think that's a good question. I think, I think I'm a look forward kind of guy. Once things are done, I, I tend to just let them go. Okay, well, let's see how we go. And we're going to begin our journey through time. We're going to start in the 1960s. Okay. So the 60s, the era of our grandparents, black and white photos, uh, uncles and great aunts that maybe you've never met or you have met or whatever, see them in family photos, that kind of thing. Tell us about your grandparents to start with then, uh, Ralph. What are your first memories of them? Well, my first memory of my, my grandparents, particularly my grand being incredibly gentle and kind and that sounds like something that you might retrospectively make up rather than it being a memory but it's not it's a genuine memory she couldn't do enough for you almost to a point of being vaguely annoying like you know when you were a kid and you, you you're not as you, you're a bit impatient she yeah. was like do you want to she'd she'd you should have fed you'd be going over to stay there and you'd have finished eating she'd have fed you lunch or whatever and then she'd come and clear the plate and she'd go, do you want anything else? No, no, thanks, Gran. Are you sure? No, no, I'm fine, thanks. <laughs> what about some some toast? No, no, it's fine. What about some, some biscuits? No. S some sweets? No. <laughs> what about some crisps? Oh, I've got some nice toffee that I bought from the shop the other day. No, you're fine, thanks, Gran. And this would go on. And then at the very end when you were like, Gran, I don't want anything, okay? And then she'd go, oh, are you slimming? And I realised now as I've got older, I think she was something like one of 11 kids in, um, in North Wales when she was growing up. And they, you yeah. know, they did not have any money at all. And, and do you have any family heirlooms that are passed on through your family that you you know you you would pass on to the next generation or anything like that? Could you go down to Antiques Roadshow, Ralph, with anything that you guys have got? <laughs> Well, my nan was quite an quite an extraordinary um, quite an extraordinary woman actually. That she she had been a real adventurer before she met my granddad, and she'd been a real adventurer as a single woman in that time, which in itself is fascinating and has yeah. a different sort of context than the modern world. But also, when you went travelling around the world, when you went to the Amazon and to Egypt and did all those stuff in, I guess, the 30s, I think? It wasn't a case of, oh, I'd love to go there, and then you jumped on a plane. It was, we're talking like month-long voyages, two-month-long voyages yeah. on steamer ships and stuff, because that was the only way you got around. So for someone to have been so well-travelled and such an adventurer in those days was quite a, quite a rare and, and incredible thing. She was an amazing character, my nan, and she, she was a school teacher, but yeah. had all this extraordinary life experience. Um, and so anyway, so she had all these things that she'd brought back from travelling, uh, including like a stuffed, I mean, I want to say crocodile, but I guess it was a caiman, like it was about sort of five, five, six feet long. And it oh, used wow. to hang on the wall of the spare bedroom oh. where I used to sleep, where I went over to visit. <laughs> and terrifying. imagine how little I slept those nights. It was the worst <laughs> thing you've ever seen. I'd be like, I'd just about be able to go to sleep shaking. And then you sort of wake up in the middle, you stir in the middle of the night, just open your eyes, just, you know, mentally check, oh, I'm here, fine. And then you turn over and you catch sight of this, this thing with this stuffed beady eye reflecting back at you, reflecting the light from outside back at you. It was absolutely terrifying. 
So, uh, yeah, so I don't particularly want that. <laughs> That's amazing. I remember my, my uncle had a, a, just even a poster of a monkey coming out of a manhole in his spare room yeah. that we used to sleep in when we used to go and visit. And I'd have nightmares all night just looking at that. Yeah. So a a yeah. caiman bearing down, you'd be unbelievable. Yeah, she sounds like a Lara Croft before Lara Croft. <laughs> well, exactly. An amazing exactly. exactly. But in But in, like, 1930s travel gear. Well, she sounds like an amazing lady. Is there a song from the 1960s that has a special place in your heart, Ralph? Yeah, well, I'm I'm going to try and, and make my choices relevant to things, my sort of my life journey. And the first music I ever owned was a cassette tape. And it was, uh, my mum was listening to the Beatles because she, she was a big Beatles fan, obviously, as so many people were. And I said, what's this, mum? And she said, it's the Beatles, 20 greatest hits. It wasn't even like one of the albums. It was just 20 greatest hits by the Beatles. And I said, oh, she says, this is great music. I tell you what, I, I'm not going to give it to you because it's not your birthday or it's not Christmas. But here's a pound. You can buy it for me. I'll give it to you, but you can buy it off me for a pound. So she handed me a pound and then held out the Beatles' 20 Greatest Hits cassette. And then I paid her for that with the pound that she just gave me, which I guess she just wanted, which seems odd, but I guess she just wanted me to understand that, like, I had to make a transaction for it because it wasn't Christmas on my birthday. Yeah, um, it's good to learn an experience. Exactly. So in honour of that and uh, my mum and everything, so in the 60s, I think there's uh, uh, something and a bit a bit lively. We'll go um, twist and shout by the Beatles. Shake it up, baby, now. Shake it up, baby. Twist and shout. Twist and shout. Come on, come on, come on, come on, baby, now. Come on, baby. Come on and work it on out. Work it on out. Work it on out. That was Twist and Shout, written by Bert Russell and Phil Medley, performed by the Beatles and released via Parlophone. Originally a hit in 1962 for the Isley Brothers, this song combined the twist craze with the energy of the Isley's 1959 hit Shout, and it proved to be a winning combination. Now, Ralph, we move from the black and white of the 1960s to the bright Polaroid colours of the 70s. Uh, let's talk about your parents then. Michael and Eileen, it's a good traditional mum and dad yeah. type names. Yes, they are, yeah. yeah. And, and how, did you, how did your parents meet? I, I don't think I know that. <laughs> I don't think I know. Any nightclub stories or a dance? Or no, nothing like that. It, it's actually a, a lot more pedestrian than that. My mum had this really interesting story where she's, she's quite a scientific mind, my mum, and she um, trained as a biologist and then went into biological research and was working in a lab. And then she did it for, I think she did it for about a year and went, this is boring so she just she just jacked it in and went and studied i think she saw an advert in the paper and then she went and did um accountancy and then uh worked in london on a placement for like a year or so and my dad well, was a more traditional route he just wanted to that's what he decided he wanted to do so he became an accountant and i think they just met at work but they did again i think my mum found a poster in, in just in the paper and it's a job in the Cayman Islands, uh, apply here. And my mum went, my mum, my dad's life was very dictated by whatever my mum, my mum's a very, very strong personality. So if my mum says, we should go and work in the Cayman Islands, what that essentially <laughs> means is my dad's like, I'll go pack. <laughs> it wasn't, it won't, <laughs> he knows it won't have, yeah, it won't have been a discussion so much as she'll have kept on mentioning it till he just gave up. Um, so, uh, yeah, so, so they went and lived and worked in the Cayman Islands for I think about 18 months. It's the weird thing though, isn't it? Because you look at photos of people in the 70s and stuff and they're, they're actually a lot younger than they look. There's just something about the way yeah. people used to dress like back, like totally. you think Terry and June, the sitcom. I think yeah. they probably were only in like the late 30s or something, but yeah. the look of them was like, you think that's what old people look like. And you sometimes yeah. you write off the past of your your parents you look through a, a photograph album you think flipping hell dad had a motorbike well yeah exactly and he was probably cool i i, I funnily enough I, I was looking through uh, exactly that some some pictures i saw a new year's eve party 
And my mum was in this like gold shimmery dress with her hair, not in a beehive. I mean, I wish I knew hairstyles so I could describe it, but not a beehive, but like done up, right? Yeah. And I was like, I don't know if I've ever seen my mum wear a dress in the entire 41 years I've been alive. And she would, she looked cool. I thought to myself, I wonder if, let's say I could go back in time, and I wonder if I'd have been friends with them. If I didn't tell them who I was, I wonder if I would have liked them and been friends with them and like would have had a yeah. laugh. And I, I kind of feel like I would have done. Yeah, it's weird. You know, it's something like you say. Sometimes you do write off the whole uh, the cool stuff that your your parents yeah. did. I, I always wonder as well. Like, at what age like do you settle on a, what you're going to wear? You know, when you see old people yeah. walking around, like, when does your your outfit stop and then you just think, well, that's me done. I'm going to stick with this kind of look. What do you well, reckon you're going to wear when you're like ninety odds? Either whatever's sort of still fashionable. I, I've never been someone who's like like it took me quite. It took me a, probably about a year too long to transition from like big baggy 90s jeans to like more fitted skinnier jeans. Cause yeah. I was like, oh, I can't be bothered. They look so difficult to get into. <laughs> but then when I did, I was like, oh, okay, fair enough. I'm, I'm, I'm into this now. Yeah. I'll probably just try and broadly do the same thing. You know, when, when say skinny jeans are in, you just don't, I've never been the person who's like, I'll wear the super skinniest ones I can because that's crazy. Uh, or, or like baggy <laughs> jeans, I won't have them like hanging around my knees. But yeah, I'll either, when I'm 90, try and still like be someone who wears clothes that look nice in context of the world. And if not, I'll wear stuff that's just really comfy, but like still, my point that I'm making is I'm not suddenly going to be like whatever the male equivalent of a twin set and pearls is. I'm not going to be like, you know, I'm not, I'm not suddenly going, oh, I've reached a certain age. I'd better pull my trousers up so that they're around my waist. Like, oh, hey, granddad, what, what, what chest size are those trousers? Wearing a bowler hat and a newsagent. What, what a way to live. <laughs> yeah, what, exactly. Is there a song from the 70s that you'd like to put forward as your track of the decade? I'm going to go with Dreams by Fleetwood Mac. The reason, actually, the reason is simply that I was never that much of a huge Fleetwood Mac fan growing up, and I've I've come to them sort of relatively late because I got tickets for their reunion, their their um, Rumours tour, and oh, I went yeah. to see them at the O2. I don't know. I guess when was that? Five years ago? I mean, I've lost track of time. It could it could have been eight years ago. It could have been that longer. <laughs> but like like the recent tour that they did, but the big story was they were back together. So I, I was reading up on them and listening to their back catalogue and stuff. And I was like, wow, you know, they were great. But when you realise how many of their songs you know without knowing you knew because they're part of the cultural landscape, that's quite something. So just in honour of that, really, I think Dreams by Fleetwood Mac and the fact that I think that when I was reading up on them, they're the most dysfunctional band I've yeah. ever heard. They're absolutely amazing. Like Lindsay Buckingham is, is a genius, incredible guitarist. So that was amazing to watch. But then it was just so funny that to read up on the fact that like, I think he and Stevie Nicks were together. And then I think she had an affair with John McVie, the bassist, John the Mac of Fleetwood Mac. And yeah. then Christine came in, Christine who's British came in. I think she was with John McVie and then she had an affair with Lindsay Buckingham. And then I think they all fell out with each other. And and then I think Mick Fleetwood just slept with both of them. And then it's just the whole thing is like the most magically like teenage ridiculousness. And they're all just How did they have time to write songs? They were just like fighting and getting off well, with each other all the time. Well, you know what I mean? Yeah, but, but that's, that's what's so amazing because so many of their extraordinary, brilliant songs are written about 
each other sleeping with each other and the pain that it caused them. So little lies has been, tell me lies, tell me sweet little lies. It's like, I'd rather, I know what you're doing, but if I ask you, lie to me. And then, you know, uh, and then um, thunder only happens when it's raining. Players only love you when they're playing. Like it, it's all that Stevie Nicks putting down her pain about Lindsay Buckingham cheating on her. So what's this maddest thing is, they were terrible to each other. And then they went to go, then they went away and wrote these really heartrending songs about the pain and then, the people that they wrote them about then had to go on tour and sing them with them. It's so, it, honestly, it's, it's cruel, so cruel, isn't it? And yeah, and then when I, when I watched them at, uh, at the O2, and they were brilliant, and it was the original lineup as well, they were all back together. And I was like, that is really heartwarming. Anyway, about, about a month later, the tour broke up or they canceled it or something, because they'd all fallen out again. Oh. And you just go, oh, okay. That was my heartwarming positive lesson dead. <laughs> That was Dreams, written by Stevie Nicks and performed by the brilliant Fleetwood Mac and released on Warner Records. Next, we jump into the 80s, TDK cassette tape, Star Wars figures and dinosaur pyjamas. Uh, the decade you were born in, uh, Ralph, uh, what's your earliest yeah. childhood memory then? Well, I will just say before I go into that, that it, uh, yes, it is the decade I was born in by a month and eight days. February the 8th, 1980, I was born in, which I'm very pleased about because it means that I'm a child of the 80s, not the 70s. Uh, these things are important as you start to get older. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I know what, and, you, mean. I know what and, you mean. I feel out of touch. I'm like, no, no, I'm a child of the <laughs> 80s. And it puts me, technically, I'll have you know, I'm a millennial. I'm a millennial by about 40 days. I just, I squeaks in, under, in. The, under the radar, yeah. So um, whenever I hear people go, oh, what are millennials? What are they like? I keep going, I know, it's not our fault. It's just the way that, <laughs> you know. So there you go. Everyone, everyone out there, I'm a millennial, I'll have you know. Um, so one of my earliest memory, um, I remember watching Star Wars for the first time. Um, I remember Christmas for the first time. I don't know what age I would have been, but I remember the first time I experienced Christmas and I didn't understand what was happening. They were very canny, my mum and dad. They had this system where, because I used to get up so early, and I can assure you, this has very much changed. Because I, was I used to say, get yeah. up so early, yeah. They wanted to get, you know, maybe just an extra hour's sleep. So when I woke up, I'd leave my bedroom, walk across the hall, and go into the living room. And my mum, the previous night, would always set up for me. She showed me how to turn on the TV, so which button to press, and then how to um, press play on the, on the VCR. And she would have set up a film for me, and one of maybe four films that she'd recorded off the TV that I wow. watched incessantly over and over again. And there would be on the side, and this blows my American girlfriend's mind, there would be on the side a cup of tea in a sippy cup. Wow, right? that's, and that's I like a tea's made for children well, in many well, ways. Well, my parents had that. my parents had a tea's made. So what they would do in order to get like an extra half hour or hour in bed, when they'd hear me wake up, they'd press the tea's made, put it down for me when they heard me stirring, put it down for me, and then go back to bed. So wow, but it's the fact that it's in a sippy cup because uh, my my missus is like. So what do you mean tea? Like green tea? I was like, no, we didn't have green tea in 1982. She's like, how old are we? And I'm like, I don't know, three years old for something like that. She's like, wait, I'm sorry. So your parents gave you caffeinated tea. I was like, yeah, mil tea with milk and two sweeteners because she didn't want me to have too much sugar. And it, it completely blows her mind, but it seems so normal to me. And to be honest, it seems so normal to me now. I think like American kid, like, I don't know. Americans are like, oh my God, caffeine, children have tea. I was like, 
I lived on tea. I still do. <laughs> Happy days, by the way. Happy days indeed. And did you enjoy school? Did you have fun when you were going to school? I mean, yes and no. I, I think I think I re- enjoyed school a lot more retrospectively looking back. But because you know, you hear people say a lot, oh, these are the best best days of your life, your school days and whatever. But I, I only think that now because I look back and life was so simple. You did what you were told, you had a routine, you sat in lessons and you did this and that. But I mean, I don't know that I got up and went, yay, school, I can't wait to go. <laughs> I don't, yeah, I don't think that would be true. That would be a lie. Well, let's get an 80s song on then, Ralph. What do you fancy from the 80s then, your song of this decade? It's only just in the 80s, actually. But I want to pick this one because I just wanted to just take a second to talk about David Bowie. Um, so I was going to go for Ashes to Ashes, which was in 1980. So it's just in the 80s. Yeah. It's really weird. If I said I was somebody who obsessively like always listens to Bowie and like, oh, I get home and I'll put some Bowie on and I've listened, that wouldn't necessarily be true. But I used to love knowing that he was out there. Is that, does that sound like a weird thing to say? I just used to love knowing that this guy who was relentlessly creative and expressive and did these crazy reinventions and wrote this extraordinary music. And then whenever you saw him in an interview, he was just so nice and normal. Yeah. Like, he was just lovely. Do, do um, you know who he reminds me of? It's like, uh, if, if, a little bit like George Michael. Um, yes, David Bowie used to yes. remind me, they sit and watch telly in their house and they love stuff and they think it's brilliant and they'd like phone up and say well done to someone or donate money because they thought it was great. And like exactly. you say, if you ever saw Bowie in an interview, he was just happy to be out of the house and was great to be there. Well, that's and loved what it. I mean. That's what I mean. The fact that he was out there being relentlessly creative, sort of vaguely otherworldly and yet at the same time completely human, I just think he was a great part of the world and I think that we're a lot poorer off for him not being around and I miss him. Ashes to Ashes, written and performed by David Bowie, released via RCA Records. The closing refrain from this song, my mama said to get things done, you'd better not mess with Major Tom, suggests that in order to make the best of the future, one should not dwell on the past, something I think we can abide by. Right, we move on into the 90s, a decade of optimism, partying, fun, cool Britannia. What were your formative years like then, Ralph? What music were you listening to in your teens? Well, um, before Oasis really exploded, I... um I can't, I can't overstate how much I sort of exclusively listened to the Beatles for a, a lot of my life. So look, I mean, definitely maybe, Oasis definitely maybe came out in 94 and Morning Glory came out in 95. And I was from Manchester. Well, I was from Berry, but I'm from sort of, you know, we, we, we had a, all broadly the same accent and like a couple of miles out of Manchester, like we're, we're, you're claiming it, right? Yeah, yeah <laughs> and, absolutely. Um, when Oasis just suddenly exploded out of nowhere and became the kings of the world, Manchester was the epicentre of all of that. Uh, to be honest, between you and me, whisper it for anyone that grew up with me, I, I loved Blur, but I just didn't see that. I just didn't see that it had to be one or the other. I just thought they were both great, <laughs> you know. Now, what's the story? Morning Glory. Um, I actually think I, Roll with It was one of my kind of least favourite Oasis songs. I thought it was quite um, not as. It was more a song. It was more a pop song by numbers than the other stuff. I think the other stuff ha- was quite creative, which may be why they went. This is a good single. Um, yeah. And then because it was, it felt like quite a safe choice. I think that the people responded by the, the sheer absurdity and silliness of Country House. I think people went, "Now nah, that's just all safe. That that one, and this is this is bonkers and silly." I think you look back now, 
and I don't think that Country House particularly stands up as a as a song no. for the ages. <laughs> you know, yeah, I'd, if I, if an album was on and Roll With It came on, I'd be like, oh, I gotta roll with it, and I'd kind of be into that. <laughs> if Country House came on, I'd be like, what a ridiculous tune. But it, it's just sort of so captured something about that. So I already, they, they were already part of a huge part of my life. I was 15 in 1995, Oasis of the Kings of the World. Then I shoot The Royal Family in 1997, and then they pick half the world away for the theme tune. And Craig Cash was able to ask Noel specifically because because he knew him. Craig Cash was the first person ever to play Oasis on the radio, you know. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. So it was like a personal favour. Yeah, so in, and he never Noel. forgot it. Yeah, yeah. So Craig used to have a, a radio show in Stockport and he just loves, and has always sought out up and coming bands and music that people aren't aware of yet. And he was the first person ever to play Oasis on the radio and the first person ever to play Radiohead on the radio. Craig's a oh, bit wow. of a legend, yeah. So suddenly, weirdly, having been at school and going, these guys, oh, Oasis, 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 suddenly, I've got a connection to them. I'm, I'm like a small, a small part, but of this whole kind of Manchester, like Manchester yeah. rules the world, this cultural, this mid to late nineties cultural kind of footprint that they had in the world. I was kind of right there in the middle of because the royal family was part of that, and it was, a, it was a sort of a crazy time, really. To, um, it was a crazy time to, to be part of that. I, I should mention as well, I've sort of skipped straight to 1994, five, and, and gone to Oasis because I said I was listening to the Beatles. Retrospectively, of course, I've discovered mm -hmm. the amazing Manchester scene, not least because I was in 24-hour party people in 2002, which was yeah. about the amazing Manchester scene of the early 90s and the explosion of New Order and previously Joy Division and, you know, all, all, all of those bands. and. I just think that that scene was was incredible. I was just probably a bit too young. I think if I had been three, four years older, I would have been right in and amongst that scene, that, that explosion of, of that music and- um, Yeah. We were kind of spoiled for choice in that era. So it's gonna to be tough to pick yeah. a song from the 90s, Ralph. What are you gonna go with? Just to be a little bit different, like I, there's any number of Oasis tracks that I could pick, not least Half the World Away, because I, I love them, um, or like the Master Plan or something. But instead I'm gonna go with, I'd like to go with a, less, a lesser known I mean, it's not not known, but a, a less known New Order track that I loved playing a lot when I was in the Caribbean filming this year. Um, mm -hmm. And it's significant because I played Peter Hook in New Order in 2002 in 24-hour party people. So, you know, I have that sort of special significance in my consciousness and in my heart. Um, so let's play World by New Order. Not World in Motion, which often people <laughs> confuse, um, which is a great song, but not the... Um, not the not the football song, but world. But you know, New Order always used to title their songs that see apparently nothing to do with what was actually in the song. So it's called World, but people often, when they think of the song, they think it's called The Price of Love. But uh, yeah, World by New Order. That's the price of love. That's the price of love. Can you feel it? Can you feel it? If we could buy it now. World, written by Bernard Sumner, Gillian Gilbert, Peter Hook and Stephen Morris, performed by New Order and released on London Records. So let's move on to the 2000s, the dawn of a new millennium. Uh, and this was really the start of your adult years, Ralph. A hugely successful actor that appeared in uh, Sex, 
Yeah, like, yeah. it's like, wow. Um, I was like, well, have, you, have you been reading my memoirs or what? <laughs> Huge amount of sex during this era. Ralph really was fantastic work. <laughs> Thank, thanks very much. It's and it's nice to finally be recognised. <laughs> that's it. That's the whole point of this thing, is just to really give it the credit you deserve. <laughs> yeah. Number one, Shagger. Uh, so a hugely successful actor that's appeared in the A-Word, 24-Hour Party People, Death in Paradise. But let's start with the huge uh, TV show Royal Family. We alluded to it in the previous uh, decade. That you started in from a young age. What was it like to be part of the Royal Family, such an iconic TV show? There's not really a superlative that gets close to it. You know, I mean, amazing, life-changing. With the Royal Family, I did way better than winning the lottery. I won hmm. so much more. You know, it wasn't like a lottery win and I'm like, right, this is a significant moment in my life and now I'm, you know, financially comfortable and then, you know, whatever. It was an opportunity to pursue a life that I never thought that I would have, that I wasn't even considering. But it gave me a chance to do something that I love and to make a living from it and have experiences that frankly, you know, money couldn't buy. You can't, you can't it doesn't matter if you're absolutely loaded, you still can't do a lot of the things that I've been lucky enough to do. You know, just things like going to see Oasis at, uh, at um, Wembley Arena and then managing to get an invite backstage. But backstage wasn't just like, here's a party backstage. It was down in the, in the sort of the corridors of, um, of Wembley Arena. And um, each member of the band had their own dressing room with their own after party and the door was on open but nobody was in them because everyone had congregated in Noel's room I think Liam had left at this point everyone had congregated in Noel's room and that's where everyone was having a party and oh, oh, and Noel's actual his own personal iPod was on the speaker playing that's quite cool yeah. just going wow I wonder what's on Noel's iPod um, yeah. but it had a there was a bouncer there so you, once you'd got backstage you didn't just walk into Noel's room you still Noel still had to know you to invite you into his room or, or you had to know someone so I was like, I mean, I, I've never met Noel. I don't know him. I don't have his number or anything. And I've never, ever been someone who assumes that bouncers or security are going to know who I am. Um, and I've certainly never been somebody who's ever said, do you know who I am? Not least because when the answer's no, you're going to look at, like a, <laughs> an absolute tool. So this bouncer was there and me and my mates, I've got two, two mates and we're walking up there. I'm like, oh, I hope, let's just walk up and, I don't know, ask if we can come in, see if we know anyone in there who I might be able to wave at or whatever walk up to the doorway and Noel Gallagher's right there in the doorway chatting away and the bouncer goes to me hello can I help you and Noel having never met we've never met each other before Noel looks at me taps a bouncer on the shoulder and goes hey he's all right in you come lad and I just walked in and I was like that's just so cool and you know and now, I, I, and now I've you know I hung out with him and I've, and I've, I've met him a few times now and he's he's just a, a, he's a lovely bloke actually he's a, he's a bit of a, he's an absolute legend uh, so just go back to the royal family. How was it to work with the powerhouse that was Carolina Hearn? What did you learn from her? She was um, just funny, actually. That's the most. She was just funny. And her sense of humour was brutal. Which sounds like she wasn't very nice, but she was, she'd never mean... She would never want to hurt anyone, but she was just... You know from Mrs Merton, she was just incisive. If she saw a moment to give you a ribbon, she, she'd do it. It's as simple as that. It wouldn't be like, oh, well, maybe like... And she'd take it and she was just always the sharpest person in any room and, and she saw Caroline saw the world just that little bit differently um, mm. which is why she was able to observe it so so clearly and she was amazing um, and generous kind funny just funny funny and yeah uh, an absolute superstar and a huge you know a huge part of my life a huge influence in, in what my life has became and has become and um 
just really tragic to have lost her so soon, you know. Okay, Ralph, well, listen, let's get a song on from the 2000s, the noughties. Is there a song that you'd like to play and tell us why? I moved to London and started sort of going out and about in the in London and the club scene or whatever. And I started to go out to R&B clubs, um, R&B and hip hop clubs. Um, and so I was listening to a lot of Snoop and Dre and a lot of Eminem, a lot of Eminem. I mean, I think that uh, Eminem probably like me got a lot of, uh, <laughs> got a lot of middle-class white boys into, <laughs> into uh, rap. Uh, and like, yeah. we all knew the words and we're like, oh, look, look at the music we enjoy. I'll pick Eminem without me. And the reason for that is Eminem's greatest strength. Like, there's a lot of, his, let's be fair, there's a lot of his lyrics that don't hold up with 2022 eyes. Um, mm -hmm. And we can acknowledge that. But still, even if we take those aside, he was funny. That was Eminem's biggest secret. He was funny. And Eminem without me, I think I'll pick because it was sort of, when he was at the peak of his powers, and I think it was his sort of difficult third album. Um, and nobody knew if it was gonna like be a hit. And then he came back, that was the first song he released. The video is, I mean, it's so dark. I think he's dancing around as Osama Bin Laden. I mean, it's really dark, but he's very, very funny. And and, and is an interesting aside, is a cultural footprint. So I just worked um, out on Death in Paradise. There was a, um, a member of the crew who's Italian, uh, but lives, yeah. in, lives in England and is absolutely fluent. Um, shout, shout out to Chiara. And she, on like night when we arrived before we'd started filming, we were there for like, I think we were there for a week and a half before we started filming. That's right, because I had to quarantine for seven days and then we had to have a few days. So just after I'd finished quarantine on night, I think night eight, there was a bit, impromptu karaoke for like, I think there was like six of us went round to um, to one of the guys' places. And and we were just playing songs and got a microphone and singing along and having a laugh. And I played without me, Eminem, because I know all the words, because I've always had a memory for song lyrics. I'm not a father, but if I was, I would be someone's embarrassing dad. Simple as that, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. So so I played without me and it came on and there was two microphones and I started going, two trailer park girls and all this kind of thing. And Chiara, this Italian crew member, came legging it over, grabbed the other microphone and knew every single word. And afterwards I was oh, like, wow. that's amazing. When did you learn that? And she said, it was Eminem lyrics that taught me English. She as a teenager used to love Eminem and she used to get like the sleeve notes and learn all the words and then sing along and wow. sing them really fast and sing them like, I guess with an American accent. And she, so <laughs> and she's like, she's like, it was only as I got a bit older, I realized what a lot of it meant and went, okay, maybe I need to, to need to sort of slightly temper the English that I've learned. But you know, That's again- like a linguaphone with Eminem. Exactly, exactly. But it was what a great idea. I mean, what fun to learn all Eminem's lyrics and what they mean and what, what a great way to kind of learn the language. And, learn um, Portuguese and they, with Ice Cube. The, 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 yeah, the yeah exactly, exactly. There we go. If you set that up as a franchise, I want 10%. I created a monster, cause nobody wants to see Marshall no more. They want shady, I'm chopped liver. Well, if you want shady, this is what I'll give you. A little bit of me mixed with some heart, like some vodka that'll jumpstart my heart quicker than a shock when I get shocked at the hospital by the doctor when I'm not cooperating. When I'm rocking a table while he's operating. Without Me, written by Jeff Bass and Marshall Mathers, performed by Marshall Mathers, a.k.a. Eminem, released by Interscope Records. Right, we move into the 2010s, Ralph. This was the decade that brought us Brexit. How did you feel waking up to the Leave vote? How was that news? I was devastated. I felt that we'd chosen exceptionalism over inclusivity. And I don't think that that's the best way for 
us to thrive as a species. Like I genuinely yeah. don't. I think that the kinder we are to each other and the more we help each other out and the fairer and more equitable we try and make our, our society, the better off and the happier we will all be. Not the people are like, well, I know it's difficult because some people are, you know, have to go to food banks and they're, they're the poorer members of society. No, no, societies are, this is, a, this is a scientific sociological fact. It's been studied at length. Societies are happier when it's fairer. That's just true. That doesn't mean no. that certain people can't make more money if they're lucky enough to run a business or whatever. But if like people aren't struggling, people are happier. One thing I found interesting about the whole leave versus remain, it kind of tore families apart. Like a lot of our family got into fights, like my dad getting into arguments with cousins on Facebook and yeah. all that kind of thing. And because <laughs> I think my dad voted leave and I was kind of quite disappointed by that because I always thought, well, that's not his kind of outlook I remember yeah. from when I was growing up. Do you have a similar thing in your family? Absolutely. Yeah. My mum voted leave as well. And I, She's my mum, and obviously this didn't last, but I was so angry for a short period of time. I was so angry. I, I was literally thinking to myself, I don't see how I can talk to her again, <laughs> right? Which is ridiculous. I'm aware that that's ridiculous, but tensions were so high at the time. And she's so intelligent, my mum. I told you earlier on, didn't know when we were discussing it. She, mm. she's, um, she's very educated. She is, she's so intelligent. She's so pro-business. She's so... Um, kind and uh, politically astute and all this kind of thing. And she was she was hooked in by the propaganda. She was hooked in by, um, she voted leave. She told me very specifically, she, went, she read one article in the Mail Online, which, you know, there's, there's your problem. She read one yeah. article in the Mail Online saying that because of what happened in Greece, the EU could, could, by the way, in inverted commas, not will, could, the EU could be bad for the um, British economy. I mean, forget the fact that like we weren't in the euro or anything like that, but the EU could be bad for the British economy. So she read one like opinion piece in the Daily Mail. Look, clearly I don't agree with it, but I don't think that everybody that voted Brexit is an idiot and I don't think they're all racists. And I don't think, I do think a vast number of them were hooked in by propaganda, which wasn't true. And I do think that the vast majority will have done so for reasons that they believed would be right. So let's be fair. But there you go. It's unbelievable, isn't it? It's just how it is, though. Well, let's let's get a song on then, on a more positive note from the 2010s. It's got a special place in your heart, Ralph. What would you like to hear and why? I'd be lying if I said this was my favourite song of the of the 10s, but it is a banger. It is a banger. But I, I love it because there's a story behind it. I did a play in uh, 2000 and I think eight, maybe nine. And it was a three-hander. There was only three of us in it. There was me, Mackenzie Crook um, from... The Office and Detectorists, absolute, you know, legend, loveliest guy, absolutely yeah. brilliant. And this young lad, this, uh, I guess he was like 21, very hipstery dressed. He was like achingly cool. He'd be wearing a jumper from the 80s that he'd found in a charity <laughs> shop and like big, thick <laughs> NHS glasses. You know, like the people, you know, like people who are like, I I like look, at, look at him and go, yeah, the, 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 those hipster dresses that you're like, I've never quite understood the whole that whole hipster thing. It's like, right, is it basically hipster fashions? Like, it was a competition to see who can look the worst, and then yet, <laughs> yet somehow, like, like, oh yeah, I look worse than you do. Oh my god, you're therefore the coolest, and somehow they are. That's the thing I don't get about it. It's, it's the fact that it works that really throws me. But um, yeah, he was like, stick to the suits cool. like the old fellas do, Ralph. That's the way. Exactly. Do, yeah, exactly, exactly. Maybe I'll just start dressing like a hipster in uh, when I'm ninety. Um, <laughs> Anyway, we did the play and it was great. I was chatting to him a bit and he was like, oh, you know, I, I want to, um, I'm actually in a band. I, I, I want to be a singer. And I was like, oh, God, good for you. Good good luck with that. Got a hobby. 
Good, yeah, good luck with it. Well, I mean, how many people go, I'm in a band? And you go, good. And actually, mostly, you are a bit like, good for you. It's great to have a creative outlet. You know, if yeah. you're in a band and you just rehearse and play and practice, it, it's worth it in of itself because it's a creative outlet for you. It's a great thing to do. So, like, good for you. What sort of music do you play? He's like, well, I'm really into, like, pop music. I love, um, I love steps. And I was like, oh, Okay, good. Because like, you know, again, no judgment, but to me, Steps came out like I'd, it was like Oasis, all right? I was Manchester, it's like, oh, Steps, no, boo, I'm Oasis, all that kind of thing. Like, because you're tribal when, you, when you're younger, right? So yeah. I was like, oh, okay, you love Steps. I've never heard of them as a, as a musical influence, but I mean, sure, sure, sure. Anyway, you know, the, the job finished and um, we sort of went our separate ways and whatever. I bumped into him in um, a couple of years later. I was, in a, um, I was in a restaurant in Soho, like a tapas restaurant. And I get a tap on the shoulder and I turn around and it's this lad two years later and he's got an apron and he's like, hey, how are you doing? I was like, mate, oh my, how great to see you. You're right. He's like, yeah, you know, I'm still the band. It's still, I'm working on it. And it looks like something might happen, but I don't know. I was like, well, look, man, keep going, keep going. And he's like, well, I'm just, you know, I'm just washing dishes in this restaurant just to kind of make ends meet while I'm hoping that the band takes off. Anyway, fast forward a few years later and I'm like, this song is an absolute banger. And it was King by years and years. And the lad was Ole Alexander. Oh, wow. And he went from being this shy, very achingly cool hipster kid to being this rock star icon. <laughs> King, written by Andy Smith, M. Ray Turkman, Mark Ralph, Michael Goldsworth and Ollie Alexander, performed by Years and Years, released via Polydor. Lead singer Ollie wrote the song's lyrics at two different stages in his life. He explained uh, it's about being in a relationship with someone and how that can feel really intoxicating, but that can also be really addictive and you can feel like a king. We arrive safely then in the present day, Ralph, there's so much going on in the world at the moment. How do you find time to relax or how do you relax? Well, um, I'm quite a big gamer, actually. And I've got to be honest, um, lockdown was sort of made for actors because so it's a bit like everyone else said, oh, lockdown, it's going to be really weird. And actors were like, what, sitting around in my house, not doing anything for days at a time whilst trying not to go insane. It's like, we've been in training for this for years. It's our time to shine. Um, I'm aware that I've been extremely, extremely lucky um, during this pandemic period because I've been able in terms to... Of, in terms of gaming, though, what kind of thing? Are you uh, online Call of Duty or racing <laughs> no, games? What no, kind of thing? no, none of that. I don't play any of the online games because I just can't be bothered getting online and within, like, five seconds of going, right, so where am I on this map? Some, like, South Korean 10-year-old has shot me. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm too... It's too much for me. It's not my time anymore. If I was 10 now, I'd probably be a Call of Duty... <laughs> overlord but like i'm 41 i can't do it i turn it on and go right now which control is shoot oh i'm dead again like it's not for me so you were in um, mass was it mass effect you were in i was in mass effect i was it well well i was in mass effect andromeda which the fans will will know is like the the least cool mass effects because it wasn't as well liked as the original trilogy but the original trilogy which is quite old now i mean it's really quite an old game i think it probably came out about 15 years ago it's a great game um, though isn't it it's great oh well I'm going to play it again, actually, relatively soon. It's been long enough now where I can't quite remember parts of the story, so it'll be a nice surprise again. What do you want for yourself before we hit 2030, then? Any goals that you've set or targets, Ralph? 
obviously for me, it's, it's always about career. I'm having a really lovely point in my career at the moment, and I'd really love to continue the successes I've been lucky enough to have. Um, if we talk again in 2030, and it's like, hey, you used to be in Death in Paradise, you haven't really worked much since then, I'll be very, very upset. <laughs> um, um, but so obviously, I mean, I guess that goes without saying. Um, one of the things I've been thinking about a lot is living in or building a house that is not off-grid exactly, but self-sufficient and good for the environment. If anyone follows me on Twitter, you'll know that like pretty much all I tweet about these days is climate change because I feel like I feel like I'm one of the scientists in Don't Look Up. <laughs> I feel a little bit like yeah. a few people are screaming about it and, and not enough. And if I, I, mean, I, I will take this opportunity to, if anyone's listening, I think a lot of the time people think, well, who are we to be lectured? I'm not lecturing anyone. I'm not blaming anyone. The only people I'm blaming are the fossil fuel industry and the propaganda that they've put out for the last however many years. What, one of the biggest genius moves that the propaganda industry, the propaganda part of the fossil fuel industry did. And by the way, this is a matter of public record. This is not my opinion. This is not me waffling on and just sort of going in conspiracy theory. This is very easily verifiable and is a fact. It's a matter of public record. They knew, the fossil fuel industry knew for a fact in as early as the 80s that uh, climate change, man-made climate change uh, driven by fossil fuels was going to be a problem um, and could be potentially devastating. And they basically just denied it. And then once they got to about 2000, they realized that they couldn't get away with that anymore. So they pivoted to a distraction technique. And that's why the term carbon footprint was invented. And yeah. we all talk about it now. Oh, I've got to reduce my carbon footprint, which is a great idea, as we should. If you can recycle, great. If you can cut down on this, great. If you can go vegan, great, because animal agriculture is quite a big thing. If you can do all that, that's great. But the idea that if all of us just recycled a bit more, if all of us just did this, did that, then we'd be fine, is a lie perpetuated by the fossil fuel industry so that they don't have to stop producing fossil fuels. And I'm sorry, that was a lot heavier than the rest of our conversation. No, no, it's good. It's, you know, you're passionate about it as well. And I feel for you as well, because you know, if you try and do a good thing on social media like you do, and you try and talk about it, it must be difficult to keep going when you just get this kind of sea of people just trying to pick you up on something that you've done before or, or try and pick you, yeah. oh, well, you've done this or you're a hypocrite. or you know, yeah. It makes you think, well, no wonder some people don't even want to talk about it because they get that kind of response. It's tricky to put your head above the parapet. And it's so easy for people to go, well, well you're, you're being hypocritical because, and it couldn't be anything. Don't you fly to the Caribbean to work? Yes. I mean, I carbon offset every flight that I take. It would be better not to fly. There's no two ways about it, you know, but I still have to live because I still live in the society in which we are all trapped in, this, in that system. Let's wrap things up then with your final song of the present day. I think I've become my parents like we all do. I've become <laughs> that guy who says... Um, oh, music today, it's rubbish. It was much better in my day. And then they go, what are you talking about? And you go, well, you know, uh, Stone Roses, The Smiths. Like, uh, uh, <laughs> um, so I guess I like The Weeknd, actually. I think he's, I think he's great. Uh, did, did you hear that he, um, didn't he do something The Weeknd like he just basically put out a statement saying, I'm banning the Grammys because they didn't nominate me. I'm boycotting it, which, yeah, I, which yes, I did kind I of like. That. He just went, what? I'm amazing, and you haven't nominated me for anything. Right, we're done. And I've got to say, I, I love the confidence of that. So I, in fact, yeah, okay, because of the confidence of that, and I love the sheer kind of like, this is how much I back myself, um, then um, yeah, let's go with The weekend and, um, and uh, Blinding Lights, because uh, uh, my niece made me do the, um, the TikTok trend with her. <laughs> it's on my TikTok. On my 
Blinding Lights, written by Ahmed Balsi, Jason Queneville, The Weeknd, Max Martin and Oscar Halter. Performed by The Weeknd, released by EXO and Republic Records. This up-tempo electropop track finds The Weeknd recounting how his lover lights up his life. In particular, the line, I said, oh, I'm blinded by the lights. No, I can't stop until I feel your touch. What about that for lyrics? Good on you, Weeknd. And there you have it, our trip through the decades. If you like any of the music you've heard, Absolute Radio has a station for you from the swinging 60s with Absolute Radio 60s to the rave-filled 90s with our beloved Absolute Radio 90s as well. And there's loads more. There's something for everyone.